Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings to our War Room podcast audience, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. Today's podcast continues our look at the future of strategic and senior leadership in conjunction with the Army Strategy Conference and the Strategic Studies Institute. Today's guest is Lieutenant General Retired Mark Hurtling. He served in the U.S. Army for 37 years and retired as Commanding General, U.S. Army Europe, and 7th Army. And throughout his career, he served in both combat and training positions and has focused on leader development from the earliest stages of a soldier's service. So welcome to the War Room. Well, thank you, Jackie. It's great to be here. Great. No, we're we're very happy to have so many so many people all in one place that we could that we could grab them and uh, get them in a recording room with us and beat them in a submission for a while and beat them beat them about the about okay. the head. That's uh, what we do to our students every day. So we <laughs> like to we like to to broaden out that experience. Um, I'd like to start with a question about maybe your role models as a strategic leader. Can you tell us a little bit about the strategic leaders, um, either military or civilian, whom you admire most and wow. why? Yeah, there there are a bunch of them uh, that I admire, that I've read about, that I've seen in person, and um, you know because we're at the Army War College, I have to first talk about folks like Pershing, who took uh, a very small force and turned it into a much larger one that helped contribute to World War One. Uh, obviously, Marshall uh, in World War Two because he. He had that unique balance uh, between the strategic and the operational and understood how to um, uh, meet the president's intent and the nation's requirements. Uh, Colin Powell, who I saw up close and personal in, in Desert Storm and after, and some of the things he did for the nation, both from a military and a civilian leadership standpoint. A more recent one, uh, strategic leader happens to be my best friend uh, as well, Marty Dempsey, uh, General Marty Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and also my commander on two occasions, one at Training and Doctrine Command and another in the 1st Armored Division in combat. And I thought he was a phenomenal tactical and operational commander. And then when he became the chairman under very challenging uh, circumstances, uh, he was magnificent in that role as well, although didn't get a whole lot of publicity uh, mm. and a whole lot of uh, folks singing his praises. He was I, sort I of a quiet. He was a very quiet, a, especially following some of the people. Dark he followed. horse, almost when he was when he was appointed. Yeah, behind the scenes guy, right. and uh, really did pretty well because he provided uh, great options to the president uh, in some very challenging times, but. You know, those are the Army guys, and you would expect here at the mm-hmm. uh, Army War College you would uh, hear about those folks. But the other ones, uh, well, one other uh, Army person, and that's uh, General Ann Dunwoody, who I watched, uh, and it was my uh, Command and General Staff College classmate, and I watched her achieve four stars in the logistics field under some very challenging circumstances and being the first uh, female army four-star I think is important um, but I, but I'm going to mention some others too because we think uh, the military people that transitioned to strategic leadership roles and and we have to I think go into politics and business and maybe even religion as well I, I'll say uh, 
President George H.W. Bush uh, and watching his strategic leadership all of his life uh, culminating in his, in his role as the president in 1990 and 1991. Um, uh, Ryan Crocker, uh, diplomat who I watched in Iraq and Afghanistan, who was masterful at uh, diplomatic skills, working with other governments. Uh, having been in, in Europe for a good part of my life, I can understand the, the significant challenges faced by uh, uh, Merkel and Macron, especially in today's world where there's hyper-partisanship and somewhat of a nationalistic mm-hmm. flavor in Europe. Right, that's certainly not just an American Right, problem, no, absolutely. Right? And, and they are countering that with a more centrist view and the ability to try and get back to uh, fact and truth versus narrative. And um, going back in history, because I... I like the Broadway musical Hamilton, <laughs> and I can wrap <laughs> some of it for great. you. Uh, I'd say Hamilton and Lafayette uh, were great in our history. And, and then one more I'll add, and that's uh, Pope Francis. I, I, I think he is a masterful study in strategic leadership, taking mm. the church where he, the Catholic church where he's taking it right now in a very challenging world. So as, as army leaders or as military leaders here at the War College study leadership, they shouldn't just focus on those that wore the cloth mm-hmm. of the country. They should go outside of that for different styles. No, I think that's, I think that's a really great um, array of, of folks that you've, that you've chosen. If you think about the way, the way you sort of worked through that, right? You, you started sort of narrowly with the army and then broadened out. Can you talk a little bit about how you view that that same sort of widening in a in a professional sense? How how do you find strategic leaders that are outside of the military profession? Well, I, I think one of the requirements of any kind of leader who wants to broaden uh, their view of the world and what they're doing is to read, and to study, and to watch. Uh, you know, that's, that's part of our uh, military tradition. You know, we, we don't just learn in the schoolhouse or in the operational environment. We pull our head up and look around us, see the other people and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, take, take our little green notebook and write down right. the things you're going to do <laughs> when you're king someday and say, hey, that's kind of a good style and a good technique, and I want to make sure I remember that uh, for if I'm ever placed in a challenging and strategic leadership role. And, and that's sure. something that I did all in my yeah. career. It can be so challenging to look sort of up and out when the day-to-day grind is so demanding. Right. right. And as our, our students and as many of our listeners clearly understand, right, the, the workday is long. Um, managing time and calendars and, and competing right. priorities and demands is really, really challenging. Can you give us some some insight about when, when you – at the end of at the end of your career, when you were at, at that really mm-hmm. st- strategic level, um, some of the ways that you would try to manage the competing demands on your time and attention. Yeah, it was it was very hard. Uh, but what I tried to do is read a lot. Um, I always have. I my, my wife gives me a hard time because I always have three books going at mm-hmm. any given time. And they're all on different genres of, of uh, literature. One's usually a history, one's a, a leadership book, and one's kind of a novel uh, that I learned from. And I've, I've uh, continued that 
till today, and especially now that I'm doing other things in the leadership realm, uh, because you can learn so much by reading about other people. And one of the strategic leaders, by the way, that I forgot to mention, uh, one that impressed me toward the end of my career, came about as a unique story. Uh, when we were transforming Europe and moving the headquarters from Heidelberg to Wiesbaden, which was my last job to accomplish as the commander of USER, um, uh, I went to the mayor of Wiesbaden and said, what would you like us to name this concern that is about to mm -hmm. become the headquarters of U.S. Forces Europe? And he said, let me think about it for a couple of days. He came back to me, and I had presented him, we can name it Eisenhower concern or Bradley right. concern or anything like that. He came back to me and said, we took a vote on our city council, and we want, we'd ask you to name it Clay concern. And he started talking about Lucius Clay, and I truthfully mm -hmm. didn't know much about Lucius Clay. I read a biography about him. Turned out that he was an individual who had reached the rank of four-star without ever seeing combat and was placed in command of the forces in Europe after Eisenhower because of the fact that he had not experienced the wartime condition. And they placed him there specifically as a strategic leader to determine what the face of Europe mm. would look like under the Marshall Plan. So reading the book about Lucius Clay and understanding why the German population in Wiesbaden that was bombed so heavily during the war would choose someone like him uh, that unified from a strategic perspective their government was really important. And that wouldn't have happened had uh, you know, we not discussed this with our German counterparts, right. and he gave me a book about clay. Right. And recommendations. Told, yeah, uh, you know, you and, and you, you take those recommendations. So when you, you talked about learning from your superiors and watching them do things, I'd also say you, you sometimes have to look, I don't want to say it this way, but look down for the from the people right. who work for you to learn a lot from them as well, because the the privates and the sergeants can sure sometimes teach you a lot about right. strategic leadership. It would be interesting to see right, what are what are your soldiers reading? What are they right. what are they interested in? What's um, what's sort of crossing their crossing their their worldview or their their screens or, or whatever whatever it is. Right. Um, when we think about strategic leadership, um, I think one of the one of the questions that we ask a lot at the War College is. For, for senior leaders to help us understand and help our students understand how to think through problems. So if I could, I'd like to ask you uh, to think of an example of a strategic problem uh, that you that you dealt with either in your military career or, or now um, and talk a little bit about the process that you might have used to solve that, uh, yeah. that naughty problem. Well, um, I'll give you two. Uh, the first one had to do... Uh, after obviously after I graduated from the War College and I went to the National War College and and several assignments took place and I was then I then found myself back as the G3 of U.S. Army Europe, uh, working for a very stern and excellent leader uh, and uh, extreme taskmaster by the name of General B.B. Bell, and he had a mission from the Department of Defense to transform the face of Europe. Uh, to reduce the, the size of the force there and to basically uh, uh, reorganize what we were doing and to, to, to go from 90,000 soldiers down to a target range of 24,000 oh, wow. in a short period of time. 
And while this was going on, we had two wars that were waging, and we had units transferring or deploying from mm -hmm. Europe to the combat zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. We were training forces for uh, Bosnia and Kosovo, and at the same time, we were engaging with the 49 other, other countries in Europe. So there was a real disconnect between the strategic end state uh, that we were asked to do mm -hmm. in Europe uh, in considering the means and the and the ways that we were asked to accomplish right. that mission. So in terms of trying to figure that out, uh, we took as many different types of people as we could and built teams and developed what the problem sets were of continually deploying people, moving forces, moving families, closing bases, building new facilities, consolidating units, uh, and still accomplishing the mission uh, that took w one of the larger teams that I've ever seen. But at the same time, you couldn't allow that team to grow too large because then you'd be talking over one right. another. Um, you know, you talk about the, the capabilities of the, the, the war college graduates and the ability as a colonel to transfer from uh, being concerned about your advancement and your unit's capability into understanding the desires of the entire enterprise and where you're trying to take an organization to meet strategic goals. Now, in our case, it was transforming the face of the army in Europe, but it connected to a larger uh, dynamic of how are we transforming the army writ mm -hmm. large and to really parse it out between the ends, ways, and means that you study in the war college and the different approaches using theory and doctrine and strategies uh, to accomplish your mission. Uh, that was one of the times I saw all of it come together. Um, the other challenge I was faced with uh, as a division commander <clears throat> was when I was asked to, on short notice, um, become the division headquarters for one of the surge units uh, in Iraq. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, um, it, it wasn't the 1st Armored Division that was going to Iraq. It was the 1st Armored Division headquarters with me in charge and about 800 folks uh, and accepting brigades from all over the Army that weren't right. busy at the time. So you talk about the leadership requirements and understanding how important a common cultural bias and a language is to forming a team of disparate people from the light community, from the heavy community, from the aviation community, the artillery community. Yeah, it's sort of a hodgepodge yeah. that, gets, that gets thrown together. That there. was a real challenge, seemingly a challenge. But my wife, who's my best friend, said to me at the time, you know, you're, you're trying to build a perfect wall from the get-go. He says, why don't, she said, why don't you just attempt to lay one perfect brick at a time? And it was an old quote from a Will Smith, Will Smith movie she saw. 
but it reminded you or reminded like me. Like pop culture saving, saving the day, right? Yeah, and it reminded me that you, you can't do everything at once. You have to do mm-hmm. one thing at a time in order to reach a strategic objective. So sure. that was important. Yeah, no, I think those are those are both sound like really valuable uh, and challenging experiences, but ones that, that maybe should resonate with our, with our students. Um, you talked a little bit about the the role of a colonel and the role of a war college graduate. Um, yeah. Obviously, in your in your career, you've worked with lots of colonels. You've seen lots of them. Um, what do you think it is that separates the the very best colonels from the ones who are average or, or maybe less yeah. less than? It's <laughs> a great question. I think the very best ones have a couple of key attributes when they find themselves in a strategic role, um, they first of all realize that they are humbled by their jobs. So humility is the biggest factor in strategic leadership because so many things can happen that you have to stay humble. Uh, you won't always achieve your objectives. You, you just have to accomplish the very most that you can. So humility is important. Um, strategic colonels understand that there's a lot of things that they don't know. So they continue to keep themselves open for learning experiences and broadening experiences and finding out how to do things at a different level. Um, They understand the ones that I really enjoyed working with were ones that shared my burden. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is they, they didn't bring me problems they understood what the problems were, and they helped me to find solutions to them. And then the last thing that I'd say from the standpoint of what makes a great strategic colonel is the fact that they know how to lead up. And what I mean by that is they understand that the motivations of their boss and the boss's running of the organization is the important thing that the enterprise is what is important it's the bigger picture of in our case the army or the military force and the nation as opposed to just the institution that they're working as a part of mm-hmm. so understanding how how they fit into this bigger yeah. picture how the, the organization that they're working with fits into the enterprise and right into national security and defense even yeah. more broadly. That's that's the biggest transition point for someone, co- and it was my biggest transformation point uh, or transition point coming out of the War College, is understanding, oh, this is something different. Strategic leadership is a different requirement. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that I was no longer just a battalion commander or just a staff officer. I was someone who was contributing to the larger picture and I had to have really good solutions to some of the problems. Yeah. How do you think that the colonels that maybe our war college graduates go about developing um, that level of awareness or judgment that you're that you're talking about? Yeah. I, it it is. It's hard work. Okay. It, good. it just it yeah it just doesn't come. Yeah. So uh, they're not going to graduate on June 10th and no. and sort of be blessed off and. No. There. I think. What happened to me, truthfully, is I graduated from the War College and then started getting faced with a bunch of problems. Uh, in fact, I was just telling a seminar about this, that you're immediately thrown into a different set of problem sets and circumstances. 
with different requirements, much greater prices, and uh, much more important outcomes. Um, I mean, it's it's similar to go going from captain to major, where you know you're a young captain commanding a company, and then suddenly you find yourself on the battalion staff right. running five companies. Well, the same is true at the colonel rank. You suddenly find yourself dealing with problems you would have never considered before, whether you're a commander of a large organization or an army staff officer in the Pentagon or a member of a joint team, the the outcomes are more significant and the challenges are much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just, and, and it, it is, it's how do you contribute to the organization versus just your piece of right. it. And it seems very hard to anticipate. I, I look at letters and emails that students, former students of mine have sent me, and it, they always start with something like, I had no idea that I fill in the blank. And that, that happened um, with, with cadets at West Point too, right? They would, ma'am, I had no idea that dot, dot, dot. But you Um, you can't teach what's about to happen. You can only give them the tools to be prepared for tools for thinking through things and to, and to solve those, to solve those problems. Yeah. Um, I'd like for you to think um, about a, two sort of specific days in your career as a senior leader. Uh, one would be, what, what's the, the worst day or what, huh. what does a bad day look like? And then the, the follow-on will, will end on a happier note. Uh, what, is a, what is a great day or the best day look like? Yeah, the, the worst day of my career, and it, I, I could almost tell you two of them that were of similar circumstances. But the worst day of my career was when I was a... a division commander, a task force commander in northern Iraq, and we had coordinated a special operations mission to come into one of our areas and go after a target. And I was really not comfortable with this target because I didn't think uh, the special operations team, who were magnificent in their approaches, had really done the things they needed to do to identify this particular target. And it seemed like just in talking to them and getting the target package that it was, um, that there was some things missing. But I deferred to, I was a two-star at the time, I deferred to the three-star commander of the the JSOC uh, at the time who was new to the area. he had just taken over, uh, well, I, I won't go into that, but he had just taken over the area and, and he wanted to get this mission accomplished. Well, they went into the target set. They killed an individual um, that was the target and it was the wrong person. It was not only the wrong person, it happened to be the son of the governor of one of the provinces that we were operating in. And we had uh, really attempted to work through the civil-military relationship mm-hmm. with this Iraqi province and this governor. And he was starting, he had been a former Ba'athist and a former Saddam Hussein supporter, and he was just starting to come around, uh, and we killed his son. And I had to go in, and, and as the conventional force commander on the ground, I had to go in and offer condolences and salacia payments and face him. Um, and I knew that not only was it a horrible thing to have happened in terms of the death of an individual, but it was really going to set the mission back significantly, and it did. Um, and there was nothing that I could do about it. So from a tactical perspective, it was a bad hit, 
but that one bad hit had strategic implications had that, that were... lasted for a very long sure. time. Um, and I learned a lot from that from that right. particular uh, lesson. Um, but <laughs> going to the the good, um, I think really it was watching uh, the families in the first armored division. And, and I'll, I'll share this story too. I was working for General Dempsey in, in Baghdad and we were asked to uh, extend uh, an additional three months as we were mm-hmm. getting ready to come home. Uh, this was in 2004. And it was a significant strategic event on the part of extending a, an, an American division right. in Iraq. And General Dempsey by, uh, writes about it in his book, Radical Inclusion. And what he decided to do after we had discussed what we should do is consider the family aspect of this as well as just informing the troops. We knew there was going to be uh, a significant negative right. negative reaction yeah, from the soldiers, but we knew it was going to be much worse on the standpoint of the, of the right. uh, family members. So General Dempsey sent me back to Germany, and in a period of three days I did a round-robin trip to all the communities within Europe, uh, telling them why we were staying, telling them how the mission was affected by what we were doing, how if we pulled out we would have lost everything we had worked so hard for. And um, and even though it was tough at the time, you can imagine what some right. of those uh, some of those I, engage- I remember when those when those decisions like those extensions were yeah were happening. Well, it, when you're in a in a theater with 600 very upset spouses and family members, uh, it's hard to see a good side of right. it. But what happened was uh, because the communication took place, and we were actually able to explain and give them the rationale before CNN and the Department of Defense announced the the stay or the the extension. It prepared the family members and they contributed to the mission at that point by supporting their soldiers. And that just really was one of those kind of missions over a several-day period where you, you look back on it and say, boy, we did the right thing, and we're proud of that moment. And it seems like such a small thing, but when you're talking about how it affected, you know, 30,000 soldiers mm-hmm. that we had in Iraq with us at the time, it was a pretty big deal. Good. So if we think about the the bad days and the and the and the good days sort of together, mm-hmm. um, what are the what are the things that that help senior leaders or help you in particular uh, sort of get through the good days and the bad days? What are the <laughs> what are the things you rely on? Yeah, boy, that that's a great question because I think it gets to the heart of what is strategic leadership, and it has to do with being centered on your values, uh, what you believe in what you use to make decisions around, whether it's respect or loyalty or courage or, you know, how you communicate. The, the things that you have deep inside, which you have built and, and are now exhibiting as a leader, hold you in greater stead at the strategic level because it gives you a base for what you believe. And, and if, if you're just an individual, like I, I see many in the private sector who... You know, I, I don't want to use this as a pejorative term, but they're wind socks. They'll they'll fly one way or another depending see on how what the, wind the is yeah, and, and see what situation is going to bring them. But 
what I see in really good strategic leaders that are, are built through trial and fire is the fact that they have a set of values and they believe in them. That's number one. Number two, that they are centered. Uh, and that's hard to explain, but it's, it's knowing who you are and knowing why you do the things you do and, and being at peace with it. Um, you know, it, it's not questioning your, uh, your worth to the organization. It's a, it is questioning whether you can improve and learn mm -hmm. every day because all good leaders do that. But it's knowing that, hey, I'm a part of something that I'm adding value to. And it's because of who I am and what I do. If you can get to that point and feel confident in yourself, not a cockiness, but a confidence, and you do that with humility, that really drives strategic leadership. And then the third thing is, especially uh, in, in today's world where there, there are narratives and there, are, there is hyper-partisanship and there's um, the, the driving of untruths, it's understanding what we've been taught as leaders that you have to use the, you have to use Aristotle's approach of combining logic, reason, and passion to the things you do. Um, and, and leaders know that they have to balance those things when they're making an argument or standing up for something, that it has to be a combination of fact and reason and logic as opposed to just some emotional narrative. And I think from a strategic leadership perspective, our nation is gonna require more of the military in that realm than we ever have before because we train on it and we operate under those requirements mm -hmm. because we live in a life and death profession. Great. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone from Iraq to Aristotle <laughs> to reading uh, reading programs and, and novels. So I really appreciate your time. I've learned a lot. I think our listeners will have a lot to take away. Um, so I'd like to thank you once again for joining us today on The War Room. And this is Jackie Witt signing off. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.